Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, chatting to Alex Michaelides. Started as a screenwriter, wrote a few movies, decided it wasn't for him, and then published his first novel, The Silent Patient, which was successful with a massive capital S. It was the first UK debut ever to go straight to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And he's followed it up with The Maidens. Now, we talk about how he discovered that he's a novelist, not a dramatist. Also, how he plots and plans his three acts. And what he did when things weren't going so well. How did he carry on? So I tried to shut out all of the other voices and the expectations and just write a thriller for myself again. And I really think that's the only way that you can write. I don't think you can really write for other people. I think you have to write to try and please yourself. And I'm quite a harsh critic of my own work. So if I feel fairly happy with it, you know, I feel like this, I always say the silent patient was the first thing I ever read that didn't make me want to throw up. And so I knew that there's something about it was, was working because generally whenever I write something, I just feel it's, it's awful. Um, and so it, it, took a, it, it took a long time to get there. There is more with Alex Michaelides in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. It's Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around, and we're living up to that today. Uh, Just to try and pinch a few tips and techniques from how they get stuff done, and hope we can do that too. Uh, Now, just before we get started, a little bit of admin. I'm going to take a few weeks off. Uh, It's been a very busy couple of years doing this. I think we've missed like one over Christmas maybe an 18 or so months, and now we do the bite-sized random routine as well that's earlier on in in the week, most weeks, not this week. Uh, And I don't feel I need to justify everything. It's just I've got a very busy few weeks all over the place, and I don't want to keep you hanging on wondering if there's going to be an episode and maybe I end up putting out one that's not of the quality that really I'd like. So I thought, just to make it clear, I'd have a couple of weeks off. Uh, And the next episode will be up on the 30th of September, fingers crossed. Now this week, I've got a fantastic chat to leave you with for a while. Before we take a little sojourn, uh, I'll leave you with Alex Michaelides. He started as a screenwriter, went to Hollywood, wrote movies for Jennifer Lawrence, Uma Thurman, and then he fell out of love with it. So he returned to the UK, worked in a therapeutic community, and got an idea for a fiction novel. 
that became the silent patient his debut it was a huge success as i mentioned it was the first ever uk debut to go straight to number one on the new york times bestseller list it was the second most sold fiction book on amazon in 2019 they named it their number one thriller of the year it was shortlisted for a whole heap of awards it sold a million copies and then he had to write the next one how do you follow that success i mean what pressure Uh, it's called the maidens it's about an exclusive set of students at university the sinister influence of the professor there and a murder that he knows a lot more about than he's letting on we talk about meditation how that plays a big role in his writing day also why he knocked drinking on the head i mean it wasn't a problem he just felt that maybe for some things he should quit uh, and and also when he starts again it's very interesting at specific points in the writing process he will abstain and then go for it Uh, also you can hear why he enjoys being the detective why he thinks he has a first act problem and we start as we always do with what alex michael edie sees around him in the place where he sits down to write i don't see much to be honest with you i tend to write at my kitchen table um I read somewhere years ago, I think it was on on writing by Stephen King, um, that he recommended writing in a room with no window. And I don't know if that works for everybody, but it certainly works for me. So I I sit at the kitchen table and uh, I face a a wall. (laughs) Um, So nothing to look out of. Um, And also my uh, internet doesn't work in the kitchen either. So I'm pretty much just me and the laptop. It's interesting, the Stephen King connection. Did you... Had you read that before and you thought, oh, that might be a good tip? Or is it just one of these serendipitous things that it ended up happening that way? No, it was just a coincidence. I mean, I've always um, liked writing at the kitchen table. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. And um, when I was a kid, uh, I would sit at our kitchen table um, at home and I would do my homework. And my mum would be off and be in the kitchen and, um, and I would do my English essays or whatever. And then... Uh, she would often be very distracted, but um, I would occasionally read her an essay that I'd written about a book or something. And, and if it was interesting or good, I could always tell because she'd stop what she was doing and she'd listen. Um, and so I do think, you know, on a kind of <laughs> an unconscious level, I think I'm still trying to get my mother's attention at the, <laughs> at the kitchen table. Uh, so how, do you, how have you personalised it, though? A kitchen can be quite a generic space it, it, it's it's a place really solely for chopping and cleaning and, and cooking i know that some writers like to yeah like that they like to inhabit their place make it theirs make it a cocoon what have you got around you maybe on, on the kitchen desk that you have just to remind you what you're there to do well it's interesting you say that i mean i, I bought the table specifically um years ago um because i wanted to have a wooden table i like having a kind of rectangular wooden table to sit on um and I tend to have my notes with me. Um, it's always, I get a little ritualistic about um, being tidy around. I'm not a very tidy person, but in order to write and think, I really think you need to have order around you. Uh, and so I, I usually start by tidying up a little bit. And then I have my notes on one side, um, which are always handwritten. And I then have a, I grind some coffee beans and have a little pot of coffee and a cup and saucer. And I always burn some incense as well. And then I, and then I start. Well, let me drop you into what might be a nightmare for you. What if you were to write in a in a very cluttered environment? How would that impact the way that you told stories? I think that would um, affect my mind in a kind of chaotic way. I think I would find it very hard to focus. I think I need, I really get very strict about that. I need, I need kind of tidiness around me. Um, I don't think I'm unique in that. I think... I can't remember it now, you know, but I grew up in Cyprus and there is definitely an ancient Greek saying about that very thing, that you need to have an ordered room in order to have an ordered mind. 
and now you've got your notes around you. Sorry to get what might be quite uh, niche, but what are you writing on? Is it a laptop? What um, is it? A spe- specialized software, and also uh, Alex, very quickly, what have you got? Any strong font opinions? <laughs> I've never been asked such detailed questions before. It's fantastic. Um, I write on a laptop. Um, when I was a screenwriter, I used to write with on final draft, but I don't anymore. Uh, I now write on just uh, Microsoft Word, and I um, uh, do I have a, I, I, I write in, in Times New Roman, but you know what? Sometimes I do find myself changing the font because I think you, if you stare at the same font all the time, you can get a little blind to things. And so it's good to be able to freshen up your uh, what you're seeing. How do you know when the time's right to freshen up what you're seeing? What's the cue to change your font? Sometimes I just get really stuck or I just feel I just feel I cannot continue because I just want to jump out of the window and I think, okay, well, at least I'll try. At least I'll have a different font to kind of encourage me to keep going. You know, it doesn't last long. I always kind of go back to the time of New Roman again. Well, I get up and I usually uh, don't have breakfast. Um, I have a lot of coffee during the day. So I start with a couple of coffees and then I go to the gym. Um, and then I come back. And then I think the only really interesting or relevant part is, is the meditation, which is a huge part of my life. And I, I meditate. I try and meditate, you know, once or twice a day. But when I meditate, it, when I'm writing, I tend to meditate three times a day. And I um, this started with uh, my first novel, um, uh, The Silent Patient, because I, I just made myself this promise that I would be entirely sober for the whole writing period. Um, I don't mean, I mean, I never drink before writing. but um, I, I would be sober all, all day and all, all night. Um, and I would also meditate uh, before I wrote a word. Um, and I've stuck to that with uh, the second novel, The Maidens. I just think, um, you know, it's not everybody works in different ways, but I, I find that if I, if I meditate, you know, once or twice before sitting down, my, my mind is clear and I'm able to kind of dive underneath any um, anxious or, or negative or critical thoughts that I have. Um, they still occur, but after you've meditated, somehow you're able just to kind of park them to one side and continue writing. Whereas I think if I didn't meditate, I would get really um, crippled by these uh, self-critical thoughts, which are pretty relentless. Um, so I do that, and then I write, and I write. Can I quickly? Oh, sorry, Alex. Can I quickly cut in just to ask a question about the um, the decision to to knock drinking on the head while you're writing? Uh, you know, so many famous writing routines are, are based around drinking, and you know, with Hemingway and stuff like that. It's, it's. I think sometimes the thing that people put two and two together: creativity with this this need to to drink when you can. What what made the decision for you to say, okay, when I am writing, I, I will abstain? Well, there's a few things going on there. I mean, what I'd like to come back to maybe a bit later on in in the chat is about um editing because i do drink when i edit but that's a different process for me um but the actual writing of the book the first draft i'm always sober for because um you know i'm really into tennessee williams and hemingway and fitzgerald and i've read an awful lot um about them um including their own writings about their own writing if you know what i mean and um you know fitzgerald is the first to say he wished he'd been sober uh for a lot of it but he wasn't um hemingway says that you can drink after writing but never during writing um and tennessee williams bless him i mean he's probably my favorite and he you know what began with a glass of wine in a very ritualistic way ended up being several bottles of wine and then the writing got worse and worse and worse um and i personally 
found that if I am sober, I've had a heavy night boozing. The next day, the words don't come and they're messy. And also, I can't really focus when I meditate. Um, but there's also something else going on, too, um, because I think alcohol deadens your subconscious. And so what I found is when I don't drink, say, for, uh, say for six weeks while I'm writing the first draft, I go to bed thinking about the book. I'm dreaming. On some level, my mind is working, and I wake up thinking about the book. Um, whereas if you get smashed, you don't think about anything. You just kind of barely function. And so there's something about really being in touch with my unconscious or subconscious um, that I, I find very um, important. Because I want to, it comes from wanting to do my absolute best job. Because the first novel, I thought it would be the only novel I would write. It took me 20 years to get down to it. And so when I finally sat down to write, I thought this has to be absolutely my best job. And for the second novel, I felt that I had to, that the worst thing for me would be to write a, a second novel that was a disaster and then blame myself because I'd been drunk through it. So, you know, I thought, okay, I've got to show up. And, and so, you know, even if the novel is no good, I, I don't really know. It's hard to judge one's own writing. I know that I did my absolute best and I showed up for it every day. So at least I have that to hold on to. A, a very good answer. Now you've, um, you've meditated. What time are we through the day and, and when are you going to sit down and start typing? Usually start around 12. Um, and I usually work until about six. Um, but I, I break every hour to just um, either to meditate again for 10 minutes or so or to have some tea. Um, I switch from coffee to tea because too much coffee, just I start, I start jumping around. Um, so, um, yeah, and then I go six. And then what I tend to do, um, this thing I'm trying to write right now is uh, work until six. And then I go for a long walk on Hampstead Heath. Um, and then it's funny because that frees you up. Um, you know, like Dickens, obviously, we walk a lot. And some, when I was working in a psychiatric unit, um, one of the, the psychiatrists always used to say to the, the patients there, um, move, move a muscle to change a thought. And there's something about the actual physical movement of walking that, that frees me up a lot. And so I, um, I get lots of good ideas while I'm walking and then hurry home and then jot them down for the next day. So what, what constitutes a good day for you, Alex? If you're getting, you know, six good hours writing there, give or take a break every now and then, what are you happy with getting done uh, when, when you go for your walk? I like to, I take it really easy um, because, you know, I think it's, it's really being able to write for a living and being paid to write is such a joy for me. And I, I come from a screenplay world where um, uh, I, I had a kind of what I call a pretty unsuccessful career in that I had three films that were each worse than the last. And uh, it, it ended up being a bit of a, a chaotic, frenetic experience. And so when I write the novels, I, I really, really slow down. So I only do like one chapter a day, maybe two. With the first draft, one chapter a day. Second draft will be two or three chapters a day. But one chapter is, you know, for me, usually anywhere between three and and six uh, pages, um, single spaced, and that's uh, that's it. But I'm happy with three pages if it's if it's a chapter. You know, I write very short chapters because I have a very short attention span. Uh, how relentlessly are you going at it? Are you pretty fastidious in working five or even seven days a week? Um, it's usually uh, six days a week, but even on the seventh day, you you keep going. When I, I studied screenwriting at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, and I had a really wonderful teacher there uh, called Alan Estrin, who was a Disney writer. And he always said, once you get in the river, you've got to stay in the river, you know. And I, I think it's really, that's always stayed with me. I don't, I don't think you can take two or three break, day breaks between when you're writing, writing the first draft. You just lose that, that flow. Now, on, in those six hours, 
you you seem to have worked it well. So when you do have maybe a dip in energy, you can take yourself away. You can meditate. You can refocus. Is there anything else though, Alex, that maybe just helps those juices go? Helps the words come out when you are struggling. I know you like your coffee. Maybe a coffee at a certain time. Maybe a little bit of music on in the background. Yeah, I have classical music. I tend to um, listen to the same kind of thing again and again. Um, you know, it's like. I, I, it's almost like white noise. So I, I listen to the same kind of soundtracks. I wrote The Maidens to the soundtrack of The Hours. Um, and that's all I listened to for a year or so while I was writing that. Um, so it's sort of, yeah, it, you stop hearing it after a while. It just becomes a way of, of blocking something out. I'm not quite sure how it works, but I find it very helpful. And you mentioned editing just a second ago and you, you you will you will drink when you edit i'm not sure if that's that's because of, of the, the state of the draft or something that you just need need anything to get you through um yet i guess uh, it's quite an open thing talking about editing because so many authors do it in so many different ways with so many different drafts but just yeah how when you've finished your first draft how long will you leave it when will you come back to it is there a process to how you approach redrafting um I, I'd like to leave it as long as possible. I think what I've done with both novels is again following Stephen King's advice of, you know, he says six weeks minimum. And um, I've managed, I did that with The Silent Patient. With, with The Maiden's Day, was, it was more time pressure. So I wasn't able quite to do that. But I definitely left it about three weeks um, before picking it up again after the first draft. Um, then what I tend to do is print it out and, uh, and read it over a period of like four days. Again, I don't rush it because I think the moment it turns into a chore for me, I just get really turned off and I just don't want to do it anymore. So I have to take, take it in small chunks. And then I have, that's my favorite part of it. Uh, my agent always laughs when I say this, but it's true because I, I have I, to allow myself to drink during the day and I have tequila. And I um, sit down um, with some tequila and my first draft and read through it. And there's something about having a little alcohol at that point, which puts me on a different uh, plane creative plane. I wouldn't be able to write sentences or good sentences, but what I can do then is maybe relaxes me and it allows me to see thematic links that maybe I were missing before or little ideas or images. Um, and so I'm able to jot notes down um, all the way through. And also it allows you to be brutal about stuff that's really bad. So I, I just like, you know, cross out whole pages and stuff like that. Whereas if I were sober and looking at it, I might be a little more attached to it. Um, but I only do that once. And then I proceed to type up all of the changes that are written in pencil, I type them up into onto the document, and then I just do that process again and again and again. I don't use alcohol again after that, but I, I then use coffee and I print it out and then read it again and make more changes. And it, I do this endlessly until, um, you know, when I was writing a Silent Patient, it was really funny because I it it really freaked me out because when I finally had the, the finished book, I printed it out, read it, and then I had a million corrections. Typed them up, read it again, had even more corrections. And I and I kept uh, this up for about it was almost about a year, and I just thought, oh my god, this is never going to stop because they weren't getting less; they were just getting different the changes. And I thought I was driving myself mad. And then, but very very quickly, suddenly at the end of a year, they got fewer and fewer and fewer the changes that I was making. And then um, finally, I I read it through in one in one go, and I had no corrections. And then I thought, okay, now it's ready. But it took many many drafts to get there. This is an organic process that has come to me over many years of writing. So I, so I discovered that the best way that I work is this, um, and I, 
I had experienced working on movies before with directors who always insisted on drinking. And I found that you think what you think is amazing when you're drunk isn't is no good when you're sober. So it scared me. And that's how I got into the whole idea of being sober for the writing. Um, and I mean, I don't know the way that it works. It's just something that kind of grew organically, really. Um, and so it's, I'm really happy with it now because it works for me. But it has taken a long time to kind of get to this um, this place. But, you know, we haven't spoken much about planning, but that's the biggest part for me is the, um, is the outlining. So when I was at the, uh, the AFI, um, the, my, my tutor had always said to us, don't do endless drafts of screenplays. He said it's a waste of time. He said just do endless drafts of your outline instead. Um, and so I tend to do that for, I would say, six months to a year before I even think about writing a page of, um, of prose. I just go over the outline again and again and again and again, um, trying to make it better. Well, I, I promise we will come to, to that in, 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 a, in, a, in a bit more detail. But that does lead to one more question about the day. When you, when you start, when you sit there at 12 o'clock, how much do you know about the scenes that you're hoping to get done before six? Um, everything. I know everything about them. I, I don't leave much to chance. I know, I mean, we can talk more about the actual um, nuts and bolts of it, but I, I know what's going to happen in the scene and what I need to accomplish in the scene and what the beats are in the scene or the chapter. Um, what I don't know is the dialogue. And I, that's why the meditating really helps because I get into a very present moment space where I just type and the characters seem to talk to each other. And I think because I'm so um, meticulous is a nice, nice word, um, controlled is the word I'd use probably about everything else, but therefore I allow myself freedom with the dialogue and then that comes out in a fresh way. But apart from that, everything else is pretty mapped out. What, what form does that mapping take, Alex? Is there a big spreadsheet somewhere? Is it meticulous notes in your book? Well, it starts, I mean, it starts off with, um, uh, there's different stages, but it ends up with, with, um, with an outline that's uh, chapter by chapter um, that's, uh, that's written down, usually in pencil, um, next to me. And and sorry, just what would I know you don't want to, you can't give too much away, but what would one of those chapter outlines look like? Like how thorough are the notes that you, you, you're giving yourself? Um, they're pretty thorough. I mean, it's about you know, it's, I, I I think about it in terms of you know. Um, it, the way that I was trained, it's really, you know, it's interesting because I, I studied screenwriting. And so I, I feel very fortunate that I had a really excellent teacher who taught me a method, I think, of writing. That, that, um, but although I don't think I was very good at writing screenplays, the method transposes really well to, to novels, I think, or to any kind of drama, you know, and that's basically, um, you know, motivation, intention and goal. You know, uh, what do you want? Uh, why do you want it? And how are you going to get it? And you have to kind of put that into every scene. So in every scene, to avoid it being completely passive or flat, you know, my heroine, and, and in this case, Mariana, wants something in each scene. And so I identify what that is. And then I think about how she's going to get it. And I think about obstacles that she's going to face. And then I think about the little twist at the end of the chapter, um, which propels you to the next chapter. And that's what I mean about planning. So to come up with that, for, you know, 60 odd chapters takes a very long time and you, you have to really think about it carefully. Um, but I eventually have that in front of me, yeah. And I also have notes about, uh, you know, atmosphere. Um, I, I I taught myself to, to write novels by obsessively reading Angela Carter, who I just love. And she's always about smells and sounds and colours and, you know, it's all this kind of very sensory stuff, which I think really helps um, 
uh, give a kind of texture to the novel. Uh, yeah, we will unpack the way that you plot in just a sec. It's interesting that you say, um, you know, with a hint of modesty, I don't, you know, maybe I, I don't think I was a great screenwriter. Um, but then again, I mean, that might be the case for, for films, but it's interesting that you're, I mean, your first, the, the Silent Patient was the first ever UK debut to go straight to number one on the New York Times. I mean, it sold a whole bunch of books. Why do, why do you think... Why do you think you can write novels, whereas you're critical of the way you write screenplays? Um, because, you know, okay, so a, a friend of mine is a critic, and he said something that I thought was so brilliant. Um, he said to me two things when he read The Silent Patient. He said, it's very clear to me now that you are a novelist and not a dramatist. And by that, he meant that I am not, I don't think I'm very good at staging scenes, but the discovery that I could go inside someone's head was really incredible for me and that changed everything and that's why I love novels because I've like you can access a real depth and I was never quite able to do that I think with um a screenplay and also um he he said that uh, novels are about can novels are about expansion whereas screenplays are about contraction which I think is so brilliant because um it's true and I what, what I learned from screenplay writing is this kind of drive to get the story moving keep it going get it you know you say it doesn't ever stop um, but in a novel, you can really slow down and you can slow down time and you can go for a walk with the character and be inside her head while she thinks about her childhood. And you certainly couldn't do that in a screenplay or not quite in the same way. Um, so that's why I think I'm, I'm better at novels. I'm just better at doing that, I think. When you sat down to write The Silent Patient, how much did you think about the differences in writing screenplays and novels the difference between expansion and contraction did that enter into your brain at all yeah it did um i i i was trying to well the two things happening i mean i i had a really formative experience where i was really fortunate um uh, to the last film i did uh was uh was really bad it was one of those films that had two titles which gives you a sense of how terrible it was and it was a complete disaster the shoot but um but um, the actress Uma Thurman was playing the lead and we ended up becoming very close friends and we were just stuck on this shoot that was happening in London, New York and Los Angeles for months that kept going on and on. It was just, it was so, such an awful experience. Um, and um, I told her about this novel that I was writing and she gave me a lot of advice because she's, there's nothing that she doesn't know about filmmaking, uh, having been starring in films since she was 15 and working with incredible directors and being a genius herself, really. She's the smartest, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And then I, I, um, she sat me down with my screenplay that I had written, this comedy that we were filming, and she, um, she just explained to me what would work and what wouldn't work and why some of the scenes weren't working. And she, it was all about um, finding a kind of, she says, Umar always says that every scene, and I've taken this on to every chapter, um, has to be an attempt at an iconic image. And so she said, you can't just have two people just talking endlessly or three people talking. You have to find a visual way of representing what is the essence of the scene? Um, and that came to me through props and through um, images. And so I was, when I sat down to write The Silent Patient, I took all of Uma's advice on board and, uh, and it made it into a much, much, much better novel. Um, now, I don't want to labour too much on a negative because we're here to talk about the maidens and, you know, the overwhelming success of The Silent Patient. However, just because I've got you and because you're being fairly candid about it, what's it like writing you know, a, a Hollywood film over in the States. 
which is, you know, something that many people dream but never get to and feeling that, oh, hang on, maybe, maybe I'm not quite, maybe this isn't where my skills lie. Maybe this isn't going well. And then, as you said, the shoot was a disaster. You could feel it crumbling around you. Just, just what was that like? Well, it's heartbreaking, you know, and as this is kind of a, a, a writer's interview, it's, uh, it's particularly poignant for a writer because um, you're the least important person on a film set. And um, when things go wrong, and they always do go wrong, the first thing to get thrown out is a screenplay. And so you see something that you spent years, in this case, um, writing and revising, being torn apart and rewritten in 15 minutes, often by somebody else. Um, and it was absolutely devastating. And it happened to me three times in a row. And so I just thought these finished films bore no resemblance whatsoever to my initial screenplay. And so I just thought I have to, before I give up, it propelled me to try and write something where I would not be rewritten, I would not be edited, and I would not be kind of disregarded. Um, and the only way that I knew how to do that was was a novel. And so in a way, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it pushed me into what I should be doing, which was writing novels. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We're back with more from Alex Michael Edies in just a sec. Very quickly, just popping up to say thank you if you've supported us on Patreon. Uh, there's still plenty of chances for you to do that. Every month you can support us and pledge whatever you like. Just a few dollars a month. It really helps us keep going. For that, as well as saying thanks for these interviews with the best authors around, that we bring you more or less every week. You get merch, you get more bonus episodes. There is also a way for your books to sponsor the show. Thank you so much if you've done it already. If you've not... Um, why don't you give it a shot for a few months? Just a dollar or so a month, whatever you can spare. You know, 
American podcast, they insist on saying the price of a cup of coffee. I won't do the accent, but it goes an extraordinarily long way. I really do promise that. And you can get involved if you'd like to help us out over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Alex Michaelides talking about his brand new novel, The Maidens. In this half, we talk about the book, how he plans the three acts, why he thinks he struggles with the first as well. Also, how he mind maps and when he mind maps and why he enjoys being the detective. And we get back to it with just a bit more about why he writes, I reckon, particularly with the uh, with the silent patient that launched him to success, how it came to him when he was at quite a low ebb, and then why he pushed through. When I uh, wrote The Silent Patient, it was, um, it was a bad place, as I said, but it was even more uh, difficult because I had been dropped by my agent at that point, so I didn't even have an agent, and I had no expectation that I would ever get the book published. And I wrote it as an exercise to prove to myself that I could or could not write. And I wrote it as a love letter to, to the genre. So, you know, when I grew up in Cyprus, I, I obsessively read thrillers on the beach, starting with Agatha Christie um, when I was very young. And they were the first adult books that I ever read. And um, I remember very clearly being on the, summer, on the beach one summer and just devouring all of her works and thinking, one day I'm going to write a book like this. I'm going to write a detective story with a great twist at the end. Um, and that stayed with me. And that was the only kind of book I ever wanted to write to see if I could do it, because I feel like I've internalized those kinds of novels. Um, and I wanted to see if I could pull one out myself. Um, so when The Silent Patient was successful, I, it, I won't lie, it was uh, to some degree overwhelming and a little scary. Um, but all I could do was kind of go back to that boy on the beach and write another book for him to read. And so I tried to shut out all of the other voices and the expectations and just write a, a thriller for myself again. And I really think that's the only way that you can write. I don't think you can really write for other people. I think you have to write to try and please yourself. And I'm quite a harsh critic of my own work. So if I feel fairly happy with it, you know, I feel like I always say the silent patient was the first thing I ever read that didn't make me want to throw up. And so I knew that there's something about it was was working because generally whenever I write something, I just feel it's it's awful. Um, And so it took a a long time to get there. Yeah. So then... Uh, you need you need to get the second book down. Um, uh, talk to us about the very first moment, Alex. The idea for the maidens came into your head. Um, well, I knew the genre. You know, that's only the only thing I'd ever want to write is the uh, is the genre of a detective story or a psychological detective story or thriller, as they're called nowadays. Uh, you know, there's something about that structure that I really love. Um, you know, the crime investigation solution. It can hold so much. And it's such a, a great holding space and a container for all kinds of other thoughts and feelings and ideas, you know. Um, so I had that to start with. And then I had the idea that I would like to, again, I went back to Christie. You know, I, I, her, her novels always take place in an you know, iconic enclosed location. Um, you know, obviously there's so many, we don't even need to list the examples. There's so many of them, you know, a train, an isolated house, an island, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, so the, when I was working in a psychiatric unit, I thought, oh, I mean, this was years before, I thought, oh, this would be a great place for a thriller because it's, it, you know, it's enclosed and it's kind of haunting. Um, and so when I finished Silent Patient, I thought, okay, well, what other locations do I know about? And I thought, well, I'd studied at Cambridge 20 years ago. And I thought, oh, well, okay, Cambridge College could be kind of cool. And once again, you know, Christy hadn't done a psychiatric unit and she'd never done, she'd never been to university, so she didn't write a the Cambridge College um, idea either. And I thought that um, I knew a little bit about that world. So I thought it would be a fun, mysterious world to, to start with. So I had that. 
And then I, um, the heroin came to me. I just had this idea, you know, the way that these things come to you in a dream-like way, you don't quite know why, but I had this idea of this very sad, broken-hearted woman going through her dead husband's belongings. It was the first image that came to me, and that's the first chapter in the novel. And um, it kind of just grew from there, really. So, and, and now we get to the plotting that we're that I'm keen to hear about. So you say it grew from there. Uh, that's a bit too vague, I'm afraid. So you, <laughs> you've got you've got, so you've got this idea about about this lonely woman, uh, and you're going to set it in Cambridge. And you described earlier that the plotting is is uh, two thirds of the battle. That's what takes the time. How do you how do you start? What's the very first do when you when you begin plotting? Gosh, these are really tough questions. Um, okay, I. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, trying to think, what do I do? I start, I suppose, with the crime um, and the twist. The idea of where I want to get to. I think you need to know where you're going, um, particularly in the kind of novel that I write. You know, I think about them very much as being based on the architecture, um, and I think that um, they are like magic tricks, and so you have to get the reader to look in the wrong direction and look at the wrong thing. And so you're trying to tell two stories at once, really. I think you're trying to write the detective story, which is the apparent obvious story. Um, excuse me. And then you try and write the, um, the murderous story, which is the secret hidden story of the novel. And that goes underneath. So these two stories run in parallel. And then it's about kind of linking them together and finding a detection as element, element to it. And that's why I like the structure. Because at the very least, you know, you have to have, you know, you have to have a crime um, and then, you know, you have to have an investigation. And the investigation is the part that I enjoy where you kind of, you know, you are a detective and you're, you're, you're interviewing people, looking for clues, trying to understand and work things out. And so I have the way that I do it is I have, um, I think it's called mind mapping. I'm not sure where I read about it or how I picked it up, but it, it, I do it for everything now. Um, so what I tend to do is I just tend to kind of sellotape together like loads of huge pieces of paper. Um, and then I start in the middle with a, a point like, I don't know, um, a murder, you know, um, a body is found. And then I just, you kind of draw a line and then the other point that occurs to you, I do it very free form. So I don't think about it in a structured way. Something occurs to me, so I draw a line and then write it down. And then another idea occurs to me. So I, I link it with another line and then another piece of writing. And, and it expands like this huge, ginormous cobweb. Um, and the reason I think it works is because when I used to plot things uh, in a list, in a linear form, it, I found it very inhibiting for my imagination. But when you're kind of writing and drawing arrows all over the place and writing upside down and being in different directions, you can't hold the whole thing in your head. And so you're much more freed up. Um, and once I've done that, and it takes a long time to do that, uh, I then... And then the tricky bit is to then sit down with the computer and try and put all of this into some order where I type it all up, and then it's a linear list. Um, and then you have a vague, then you're left with some kind of vague sense of a plot, um, a vague movement. Um, and then onto that, I try and you know, I don't think too much about three act structure, but but it's definitely imposed on me from from learning to be a screenwriter, where you know the, the there's various ways you. The first beat I try to get to is the end of Act One. Um, and my writing teacher at the AFI gave me the best definition of the end of Act One beat that I've ever heard, which is he says that when you're going to pitch it to somebody, the first thing that comes out of your mouth is generally the end of Act One. So in this case, there's a murder in Cambridge. You know, that kind of, there's always a detective going to investigate the crime, you know, or 
something like that, you kind of lead to that point and that's your end of act one beat. And then you kind of get all the way to the end of act two beat, which is when everything goes wrong and the detectives, you know, pretty much left for dead and it's all over, it's a disaster. And then it leads you to act three, you know, it's the resolution, the climax, the twist. And so you have a very kind of vague shape, um, which again, I just, and then you just go, I go over it again and again and again and again. And layer, but the, the, as I said earlier, Uma's, um, the thing that really changed me was, was Uma's advice about props and visual stuff because, so now what I do is I, um, you know, I, I also studied a lot of Billy Wilder, um, when I was trying to teach myself to write and would watch his films. And because he came from silent cinema, there is no, there, nothing. He, he, in one of his interviews and with Cameron Crowe, he said that you must never communicate a plot point through dialogue. You can do it through dialogue, but you also have to have a visual image. To it, so if you turn the sound down, you can still tell what the story is, um, and he's a master at that. You know, be it a cracked flower or a. I'll give you a really good example. Um, in Love in the Afternoon, uh, Maurice Chevalier discovers that his daughter Audrey Hepburn is in love, and how does he do that? Um, if I were writing it, I would try and do it through dialogue, and then that would be wrong. Um, he has uh, him open the refrigerator, and he sees that she's keeping a little rose alive in a, in a half a glass of water. And then he looks through the door and he sees her and she's sort of humming to herself as she's taking out her cello and he smiles and he gets it and we get it. And so what I tend to do while I'm writing is layer all of that onto the novel. And so I try to find a prop to uh, express the beat of every scene, which then in turn leads into further plot development. So an example in The Maidens is these postcards that the killer sends to his victims. Um, with ancient Greek taunting, kind of taunting them with ancient Greek um, uh, quotations about human sacrifice. And um, that came to me through this process of trying to find a prop to, to, to demonstrate, um, you know, uh, that they are being targeted. Instead of doing it through dialogue, I thought, okay, I need a prop, so I'm going to have to do it. And then the postcards came to me, but then that feeds into the novel itself and, and so on, you know. I don't know how others write, other writers write, so it's quite a shock to hear that people don't know where they're going. I wouldn't know how to do that. I would be too paralyzed by fear. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to fear management and I have a, a massive amount of anxiety about my writing. And so I, I, I think if I were to try and write something and not know where I was going, I think I would be too scared and inhibited to progress with it. But yeah, sure. I think allowing, giving yourself a, a really solid outline, it doesn't mean that I'm not surprised and it doesn't mean that things don't change during the writing process and they do. Um, but on the whole, the movement, remains the same. The, the maidens was more fluid than the silent patient. The silent patient, I was walking on Hampstead Heath and had an idea for uh, a book and then sat down and wrote the whole thing from start to finish on my phone. And I still have it um, and nothing changed. Um, but with the maidens, I definitely, because it was a much bigger novel with a bigger canvas and more characters, it definitely changed a lot more. Um, but even so, allowing myself to, um, to plan that kind of meticulously does do exactly what you're saying. It allows you to then really focus about being on the scenes and the and the the, the language and the, I really enjoy writing sentences, you know, and and, um, and moving words around and and trying to make it a visual and sensory experience. All of that stuff, I find that you you know the most important thing that I ever learned as a screenwriter, screenplay writer, is that you can't do everything at once. And I you know I meet people again and again and again, as I'm sure you talk to people too who who um who think because they've done one draft or whatever that it's finished or one, two drafts and they can't do any better and it's kind of done or they try and do everything in one draft and then get inhibited. I don't think it works like that. I think if it's much more like painting, you know, so you start with a, 
basic brush strokes and then the next time you add more detail and the next time you add more detail and you go deeper. Billy Wilder said that the point of each rewrite and each draft is to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the thing. And so that's what I, I tend to do. Now let me, at the start of your prologue really is quite something. So Edward Fosker was a murderer. This was a fact. And then it goes on to say Edward Fosker was guilty. Now you've just said that's not giving anything away. I mean, it's the first line. And you've just said that there are twists and turns on the way because that's how you write. But what was it like when you came upon that way to start a story, to immediately get into it? Like, this is what it's about. It's about a murder. And here's going to be one of our, uh, the, the, the bloke we're going to assume has done it for a long time. Well, a lot of it's about just, you know, from a practical level, you don't want to bore people. Um, and so I, I want to try and get on with it. You know, I, uh, it's funny you said that because it, 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 something that somebody said to me once was it was really true that, that I have a first act problem, and I really think I do have a first act problem in that it's it always it's twice as long as it should be, and so part of that is a, is a desperate attempt to try and get the story moving faster. Um, but also, uh, to be brutally honest, um, it, I stole it pretty much from um, Ruth Brendel has been a massive influence on me, and one of my favourite novels is called The Judgment and Stone, and the first line of that novel is. Eunice Parchman killed the Coverdale family because she could not read or write. And it's a, it's a really audacious way to start a book. And it's quite bold and devastating too. And, you, and immediately it conjures up a whole other level of suspense. You just think, okay, well, what happened then? You know? And so it's, uh, it's such just a technique I thought was really startling and fresh. And so I, I borrowed it. <laughs> no, it's, and then, I mean, with the Ruth Rendell one, it, it kind of, the question is then... Well, what is the suspense? Like, why am I reading it? Like, most of the time you're reading it to find out the killer. But if you know the killer, okay, so what? why why are you trying to hook me in? Now, listen, you've been quite wonderfully self-analytical. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inquire just one more thing from that thread. Uh, the Silent Patient being the first ever UK debut novel to go straight to the number one. You know, it's huge in America. It's been huge everywhere. I guess the question is, when you're writing in a genre where there are quite a lot of thrillers on the shelves um why do you think yours has, has stood out to, to such a degree that's an interesting question it's a tough question i'm probably not best placed to answer it i i don't all i know is that my experience has been from people around the world who, who get in touch with me and they've read it is that very a very common refrain is i don't read thrillers but i read your book and i really enjoyed it and i think because I, I, I was trying to, right from the outset, you know, marry a Christie-style plot with a deeper emotional, psychological sensibility. And so all of my thoughts about therapy um, went into the novel. And so and all my thoughts, my beliefs about childhood trauma and all these other stuff. And so I think it worked on different levels. I think people who, you know, could just you could just read it for a thriller and enjoy that plot, or you could read it as something possibly a little bit deeper and enjoy that too. And I, I think maybe that's what it is. So I... I, I, those are the kind of books I like to read. I like to read rich books that have a lot going on, not not just a, a, a plot, you know. Because I think a plot, I think a lot of modern thrillers are, there's some really great ones out there, but a lot of them are just a bit, you know, like a takeaway burger. They're just like, you know, read, you devour it really fast and you're left feeling slightly, slightly sick and slightly empty. Um, and so I don't like to read books like that and I certainly don't want to write them. And lastly, and this is a bit of a, a standard question, but a, a lot of our, a lot of the listeners to the show are, 
uh, aspire well are writers but can't kind of catch that break to get their book out there and you having come back to London working in Hollywood doing screenwriting then not having an agent how did the process of getting the silent patient go for you? It was wonderful I mean I honestly can't tell you the amount of times in my life the amount of rejections I've had have just been so brutal and so endless the screenplays and so I didn't expect it to be any different um and I was fortunate in that I just again it was you know I don't know it's fate or luck or what it was but I I looked online trying to find an agency that would accept uh, unsolicited manuscripts and there are very few far between but fortunately I think one of the best agencies um, is the one I'm at which is um, Rogers Coleridge and White and they do except not all agents there, but a couple of them. And, and I wrote to um, to one of the agents there uh, called Sam, who ended up becoming my agent and a really good friend now. And um, and I just said, look, this is my situation. I'm a screenwriter. I've written a novel. It's a kind of detective story. Would you consider having a look at it? And he wrote back the next day saying, sure, send me three chapters and I'll have a quick look. And then, he, you know, and then a day later, he said, why don't you send me the whole thing? I enjoyed the first three chapters. And so I did. And then within a week, I'd signed for him and we were selling it. So it was it was like it was such a dream. And it was the most wonderful experience of my life. And after all of those years of everything going wrong, it, it was just so blissful. But I, I know it's not like that for everybody. Um, but I do think that that's the way you need to do it. I, I think you just need to target somebody and just write to them and be honest. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Alex Michaelides for coming on the show. Uh, you can get a copy of his book over at writersroutine.com by using the uh, the episode by using the, the link in the episode notes as well. Uh, now, yes, as I said, I'm having a few weeks off. I'll be back with a brand new episode and author for you on the 30th of September, all being well. In that time, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that on Twitter at writerspod by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Only takes a second, goes a long way. Uh, and by getting in touch at writersroutine.com. And you can always support us at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Until then, until the 30th of September, I'll see you soon. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.